All right, well, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to John chapter 10. We're going to pick back up from where uh, Pastor Enro left off last week, roughly around verse 22, and then we will go on to finish this chapter today. Again, it's John chapter 10, and we'll start reading in verse 22. Hear now the inspired word of God. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father." Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. And he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray. Fathers, we now come to this most sacred time when we open up your word and declare it. And exposited, I ask that you be with us today, that you teach us, convict us, conform us, encourage us, strengthen our faith. There is great encouragement to be taken from this text today. So may you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the voice of the great shepherd. We ask in his name. Amen. Well, with this block of text, we come now to a very controversial section of scripture. And of course, as I've said before, there are people out there to make just about anything in the Bible controversial. But this section in particular has been a focal point, especially for those who de deny the divinity of Christ. So before we dive into details, I want to first do a little flyover of the text and just highlight a couple of things. And along the way, explain a little bit why there's so much controversy. Then we'll go back over it and start to dig into some of the details. But first, let's talk about the setting here. Verses 22 and 23 tell us that at this time, the Feast of Dedication was taking place at Jerusalem. Now, this is the only place where this feast is mentioned by name in the Scripture. And so you may be wondering, well, what is it? You actually may know something about this feast, you just don't know it by that name. 
You may know it by its other name, which is Hanukkah. If you watch Seinfeld, you'd recognize that name. And for some of you, you may have heard of Hanukkah, but you're still not quite sure what it is. Because, hey, that's something the Jews do. It has nothing to do with me, so you've never really looked into it. Well, to understand a little bit about this festival, we have to go back in time a little bit, before the time of Christ. Following Alexander the Great's death in 323 B.C., there was a lengthy power struggle among his generals that lasted for over a century. And ultimately, the Greco-Syrian Seleucid kings prevailed and took control over many of Alexander's former territories, including Judea. Now, the Seleucids employed what we call Hellenization. That's where you sp spread Greek culture, Greek architect, Greek art, philosophy, religion. And there were many in Judea, Judea that did not like this at all. When Antiochus IV Epiphanes took over as the Seleucid king in 175 BC, he attempted to force the Jews to assimilate. He seized the temple of Jerusalem and desecrated it by installing an altar dedicated to the Greek deity Zeus. And Antiochus banned the Jewish faith and he ordered them to worship the Greek gods. In the first century AD, the Jewish historian Josephus chronicled the violent looting of Jerusalem and the mistreatment of Jewish dissenters who were, quote, whipped with rods and their bodies torn to pieces and were crucified while they were still alive and breathed. And if there were any sacred book or the law found, it was destroyed and those with whom they were found miserably perished also. So appalled, by the desecration of the temple and the inhumane treatment of the Jewish people, a priest named Mattathias and his sons learned a little bit of guerrilla warfare and initiated a rebellion. After Mattathias passed away in 166 BC, his son Judah the Maccabee, also known as the Hammer, assumed his father's position in battle and led the Jewish people to victory. In 164, he regained Jerusalem. They restored the temple, purified it, and rededicated it. The Maccabean Revolt, as it's become known, continued and ultimately drove the Seleucids out of Judea in 160. The word Hanukkah means in Hebrew, dedication. And it commemorates a miracle that apparently took place when they rededicated the temple of God. According to Jewish uh, tradition. The Seleucids, when they left, they only left one uncontaminated vial of oil, which had the seal of the high priest. And it was barely enough oil to light the temple's menorah for one day. And if you recall, the menorah was that lampstand in the temple with the branches, the seven branches. Looks like a tree. However, the oil that was only supposed to last a day ended up burning for eight days, which gave them enough time to obtain some more oil. So this whole recapturing of the temple, its rededication, the miracle that took place with the oil lasting for eight days, this would become an annual eight-day fe feast 
of celebration <coughs> known as the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah. Josephus referred to it as the Feast of Lights. The holiday was marked by the lighting of lamps and candles, not only in the, syn in the synagogues and the temple, but also in their homes. And it was a time of great joy and celebration, during which public mourning was not permitted. And although traditionally it was fairly a minor religious holiday, Hanukkah grew popular, especially in the 20th century, probably due to its proximity to Christmas. The, the first day of the feast is the 25th day of Kislev, which roughly corresponds in our calendar to the month of December. And so many were giving gifts to one another during Christmas, and they kind of adopted some of that and started giving gifts to one another during Hanukkah. In fact, I think it's on Seinfeld where he says Hanukkah is basically the Jewish version of Christmas. <laughs> well, it's a little bit deeper than that, but... And of course, there are various other things that they do during this feast. So that was the feast going on here in John chapter 10. So I'm just trying to paint a picture here for you. Jesus, there, there's a ton of Israelites in Jerusalem. They're celebrating this feast. It's a time of great joy. They're remembering and celebrating Jewish victory over their oppressors. They're recapturing of the temple. They're rededicating it to God. John goes on to tell us that it was winter, which is exactly when you'd expect it to be for this feast, and that Jesus was in Jerusalem walking in the temple during this feast, and specifically he was in the colonnade of Solomon. Now what exactly is that colonnade? Well, on the eastern side of the temple there are these rows of columns to help support a roof. And on one side you had, along with the columns, a solid wall, and on the other side it was open. There was no wall, just the columns which opened up to the outer court. So it's possible that Jesus may have been in that area along with the others uh, in the winter instead of out in the open court because the, the roof and the wall would have maybe shielded them a little bit from cool air. But whatever the reason, this is where Jesus is. This is what's going on. And the Jews start to gather around him. Again, keep in mind why the Jews are there and what they're celebrating. Also keep in mind that many of them were looking what many of them were looking for in a Messiah. If you recall, back in chapter 6, many of these Jews wanted to make Jesus a king. You know, sort of a Judah of Judah of Maccabee, Judah of the Hammer, part 2. So here they are celebrating this great rebellion and victory of the past, led by the great Jewish hero, Judah the Hammer, and so when they see Jesus there, they surround him and ask, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. It could be that many of them were just simply just wanted to know, are you the guy? Or it could be that this was a setup by others. Again, they're in this large crowd, tons of Jews in the temple, Hey, if we can get Jesus to say this explicitly, we've got the mob here to do something with him. But again, whatever the motives, whatever the reason, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. 
The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than, than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Well, this sets them off again. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and then Jesus answers, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you going to stone me? And they answered him, It's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Now, what is blasphemy? Well, the Greek word here is blasphemia. And so, as you can hear, we basically transliterated the Greek term, brought it straight into the, straight into the English as blasphemy. At its root, it means to profane to show disrespect to God or to sacred things. Calvin writes, there are two kinds of blasphemy, either when God is deprived of the honor that belongs to him, or when anything unsuitable to his nature or contrary to his nature is ascribed to him. So here the Jews are arguing that Jesus has profaned God. He has disrespected God. Why? Because you, being a man, Make yourself God. Now, if you read the commentaries, and I'm referring to good, solid guys, I'm not talking about some of the crazy liberals that you read, one point of controversy here is whether or not the Jews rightly understood what Jesus was saying. Some theologians say that they did. Some others, some argue that they misunderstood Jesus. Some say it's a little mixture of both. Now, part of the reason why some believe that the Jews misunderstood Jesus is because of this language of being one with the Father. That language, as it's rightly pointed out, does not necessarily by itself, apart from any context, indicate a claim to divinity. For example, in John 17, when we get there, we'll read that Jesus is going to ask the Father to keep those who were given him by the Father as one, even as we are one. And then he'll go on to say in verses 20 and 21, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, I don't think anyone would argue from this text that Jesus is praying for us to become one essence with God the Father, just as the Son is of one essence with God. That's not the meaning here in chapter 17 of being one with God. So it is argued by some that when Jesus says that here in chapter 10, I and the Father are one, he's not claiming to be one in essence with the Father. And then the Jews, as some argue, thought that that's what Jesus was saying, but they just simply misunderstood him. Now you might be surprised to hear what Calvin says about verse 30. Referring to I and the Father are one, he says, he intended to meet the jeers of the wicked, for they might allege that the power of God did not belong, uh, did not at all belong to him, so that he could promise to his disciples that it would surely protect them. He therefore testifies that his affairs are so closely united to those of the Father that the Father's assistance will never be withheld from himself and his sheep. The ancients made a wrong use of this passage to prove 
that Christ is of the same essence with the Father. For Christ does not argue about the unity of substance, but about the agreement with, with which he has with the Father, so that whatever is done by Christ will be confirmed by the power of his Father. Now, of course, Calvin did not deny Trinity. He did not deny that the Son of God is of the same essence with the Father. He just didn't believe that that was Jesus' point here in verse 30. So there's that difficulty that you have to deal with. And I'll just go ahead and spill the beans and tell you right, right now, I disagree with Calvin here. Surprise. <laughs> yes, despite the caricatures, we don't always agree with Calvin, and that's okay. But then it gets more interesting. So after the Jews get triggered, accuse Jesus of blasphemy and attempt to kill him because he, a mere man, makes himself out to be God, which may or, they may or may not have rightly understood, and we'll get to that later. Notice now how Jesus responds to this charge of blasphemy. Now, just for the sake of argument, let's run with the idea that Jesus was making himself out to be God, and the Jews rightly understood that. How then would you expect Jesus to answer the Jews? You might expect him to go to certain Old Testament scriptures that point to the divinity of the Messiah, right? Much like we would do now in defending the Trinity from the Old Testament. But Jesus does something a little different, it appears. He appeals to Psalm 82, where God speaking to mere mortal man, says, you are Elohim. You are gods. Now, if Jesus is defending the idea that he is uniquely of the same essence with the Father, why would he defend his divinity by appealing to a psalm that simply draws attention to the fact that mere men are also called gods? Is this all Jesus is doing? He's simply arguing that, hey, just like these mere mortal men can be called God, so I can be called God as well. So what's the problem? You know, there are many who deny that Jesus is one in essence with the Father, and they would point to this very text here in John 10 and see, say, see, Jesus wasn't arguing some Trinitarian doctrine here. He referred to himself as a God in the same way other men could be called gods, as proven in Psalm 82. So there's that controversy. How are we to understand Jesus' appeal to Psalm 82? So now you can see, begin to see, why this section is so controversial. Many have pointed to these verses to argue against the doctrine of the Trinity. And even among those who affirm the Trinity, like Calvin, they may not necessarily agree on all of the details. Like Jesus' meaning when he said, I and the Father are one. Also, we have seen elsewhere that this language of being one with the Father does not in itself necessarily imply being of the same divine essence. So, that's the flyover. Now let's get into some details. What are we to do with all this? Well, here's my short answer. I believe that understanding Jesus as claiming to be of one essence with the Father is exactly his point. And it's plastered all over these verses. And thus, the Jews rightly understood what Jesus was saying. And Jesus' appeal to Psalm 82 actually reinforces the whole thing. So now, the fun part. Let's unpack all this. Now, we've already mentioned the setting about the feast, so we won't repeat that. But now let's go to verse 24 again. 
So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. First of all, what Jesus says here in verses 27 and 28 is very interesting. If you recall, two Sundays ago when we were looking at Jesus' language of being the shepherd earlier in this chapter, we noted how this was not some random pastoral metaphor that he used. It was not arbitrary. In the Hebrew Bible, God rebuked the false shepherds of Israel and promised to be their shepherd and come to rescue them. And as we saw, Jesus claimed to be that promised shepherd. Well, that shepherd sheep theme continues on here at the end of chapter 10, and it's being expanded upon. Jesus is drawing more language from the Hebrew scriptures regarding this theme of him as the great shepherd. For starters, these words here in John 10 echo Psalm 95. Listen to Psalm 95 and see if you can hear a little bit of John 10. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is the great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Notice some of the parallels here between Psalm, this Psalm and John 10. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Psalm 95 says, today if you hear his voice. Jesus said that no one will snatch them out of my hand. Psalm 95 says that we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Jesus said, I have shown you many good works. And Psalm 95 says that your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. Jesus' words here in verse 28, that no one will snatch them out of my hand, also parallels Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, wherein God states that there is none that can deliver out of my hand, as well as Isaiah 43, 13 where it says, also henceforth, I am he, there is none who can deliver from my hand, I work, and who can turn it back. Beloved, I believe Jesus here is taking language from the Hebrew scriptures that speak of Yahweh alone as God, and he's applying it to himself, just as he did earlier with the great shepherd language. Further, in Deuteronomy 32, God will go on to say, see now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. 
I wound and I heal, and there's none that can deliver out of my hand. Notice here that the very thing God alone claims to do, I kill and I make alive, Jesus applies to himself in saying in verse 28 of John 10, I give them eternal life. Well, th this use of Deuteronomy 32 shouldn't come as a complete surprise to us, given other theologically significant context where Jesus is depicted as taking on the role of Yahweh, of the Lord. In such situations, Israel is advised not to abandon Yahweh for any other gods, as stated in Deuteronomy 31. Paul will pick up on this theme in Hebrews 1.6. There he directly quotes from the Greek version of Deuteronomy 32, verse 43, Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to, down to him, all gods. So why is Jesus using all of this language from Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 95? I believe he's doing so to not only make the connection between himself and Yahweh, but he's also drawing the parallel that just as the Jews of old tested and challenged the Lord despite witnessing his works for 40 years in the wilderness, so now the Jews of Jesus' day have also hardened their hearts even though they had witnessed the numerous miracles that he had performed. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me and you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. But then notice what he goes on to say. My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. Do you see what Jesus does here? Notice he makes a distinction between himself and the father. He says, my father who had given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my out of the father's hand. But he had just said prior to that that I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So here he is saying again that no one will snatch them as he did in verse 28. But instead of saying my hand, he says that they won't snatch them out of the Father's hand. So whose hand are these sheep in? The Father or Jesus's? Well, both. Is it not clear that Jesus here, though making a distinction between himself and the Father, right? The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. There's a distinction. Nevertheless, in some sense, does make himself equal to the Father by placing the sheep in both of their hands and then claims as only Yahweh could claim to give them eternal life. And he does all of this using the language of Deuteronomy 32 and especially Psalm 95 to make the connection that he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. And that it is his voice that when you hear you should not harden your hearts 
and be like your fathers who put me to the test, though they had seen my works. I and the Father are one. There it is. That's the meaning behind being the shepherd who has sheep in his hand that he will not lose and gives to them eternal life. Distinct from the Father, but one in essence with the Father. I believe that is exactly what Jesus meant. And I believe these Jews picked up on that and they knew exactly what he meant. And so they picked up stones to stone him. But then Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Recall also that we had seen this before in John chapter 5. It's a very similar situation. If you remember there, Jesus healed the invalid of 38 years, and he did it on the Sabbath. And because he had done it on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus' response to them was? My father is working until now, and I am working. And this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees his Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is himself doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father." Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. And it goes on, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You see, what we have here in John chapter 10 is the exact same thing we had going on back in chapter 5. I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, Jesus, though distinct from the Father, is nonetheless making himself equal with the Father. And he does it by taking these Old Testament passages about God and God's soul prerogatives and actions. And he not only applies that to himself, but then brings with that all the parallels between their hard, hardened hearts and the hardened hearts of their fathers. 
And just as that triggered them back in chapter 5, so it triggers them here again in chapter 10. Oh, it's not for a good work that we're going to kill you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. Well, that finally brings us then to verses 34 and following. Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said you, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Again, so far what we have argued is that Jesus' language boldly makes the assertion that he is claiming to be equal with the Father, yet distinct. And that is exactly what the Jews understood him to be doing and thus charged him with blasphemy. So now we have to ask, how do we make sense of Jesus' counter-argument from Psalm 82? Well, as I mentioned earlier, some believe that Jesus' appeal to this psalm only proves that Jesus is utilizing the titles of God and the Son of God in a way that's no different than how they have been said of other mere mortal men. Well, I don't believe that is Jesus' point at all. In fact, I think it's the exact opposite. Jesus here is actually doubling down on his equality with the Father, and I believe he appeals to Psalm 82 much for the same reason that he used the language of Deuteronomy 32 and Psalm 95. He's not only going to defend his essence, but he's going to do so with a text from their Bible that parallels the very situation that he's in at that very moment. Now, since the psalm is short, I want to read the whole thing. But before we do, again, recall what we heard from Ezekiel, where God rebuked the shepherds of Israel, and then promises to be Israel's shepherd. And Jesus comes along then claiming to be that great shepherd. We read in Ezekiel, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, oh, shepherds of Israel have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened. The sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and heart harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. And then verse 10, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. Well, now here in continuing this whole shepherd sheep theme, here is Jesus now quoting from Psalm 82. And listen to this psalm. And again, notice the parallels. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods 
he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked, Selah? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth have, are shaken. I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Beloved, do you see what's going on here in John chapter 10? Jesus is walking in the temple, and the Jews gather around him. Do we not hear Psalm 82.1? God has taken his place in the divine council, in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, I told you, and you do not believe. I am the good shepherd. I am the prince. I am the son of David, the great shepherd that was promised, God incarnate. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And you, you are all hypocrites. I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, just as you were appointed shepherds of Israel, but you have failed to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. You have failed to rescue the weak and the needy. You have failed to deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And I am against the shepherds of Israel. So though I said you are gods, nevertheless, like men, you will die and fall like any prince. And it's here that Jesus is using a common rabbinic form of argument where he argues from the lesser to the greater. If such wicked and unjust rulers can be called gods, and sons of the Most High, whom God is going to destroy. And you Jews certainly would never accuse the psalmist of blasphemy for calling them gods and sons of God. How then can you accuse me of such when I am the very Son of God and one with the Father? And just as God in Psalm 82 stands in the midst of the divine council pronouncing judgment on the unjust rulers, which is a continuation of what we saw earlier in this chapter with the talk of Jesus being the great shepherd and Ezekiel's warnings and promises. Here now we have Jesus using that exact precise text to pronounce judgment on these men. John does in chapter 10, or excuse me, Jesus does in John chapter 10, the very thing that God does in Psalm 82. But now also I want you to notice this. He says, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world? You blaspheme, uh, you, you, uh, you blaspheme because I said I am the son of God. 
Again, are you catching this? In verse 35, Jesus states that the gods mentioned in Psalm 82 are those to whom the word of God came. Then in verse 36, he declares that he, the Son, was sent into the world by the Father. By doing this, Jesus is identifying himself as the word of God from Psalm 82. And he positions himself as the one sent into the world to judge the wicked rulers and authorities. Is it any wonder now why they got so upset with him and wanted to get rid of him? Recall what we heard in the opening of this gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God distinction, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, verse 9, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. And he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's being played out here in John chapter 10. Isn't it interesting that here in chapter 10, you have the word of God who was sent by the Father in their very presence at the temple, shining forth as the true light during the festival of lights. And they completely failed to recognize. John 5, 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And in verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of of man. Jesus' argument here in chapter 10 not only exposes their hypocrisy, but he pulls the reality of Psalm 82 directly into his time and situation to show that what the scriptures have said all along is now coming to pass. Tell you plainly? Well, I've told you. But you're not listening. You don't believe. My works bear witness of me. John bore witness of me. And the very scriptures you search because you think that in them you have eternal life, those very scriptures bore witness about me. But you don't recognize me. Why? Because I'm obscure? Because my, because I'm just teaching random art? No. You don't recognize me because you know neither the Father and you don't know your Bible. Oh, it's plain enough. But you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep will hear my voice and they will follow. And then we see that very thing put on display here as this section comes to a close in verse 40. So he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first and there he remained and many came to him and they said, John did no sign 
But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. Close with this quote from Calvin. Again, this is him kind of this is summarizing this whole section here. For it was entirely their own fault that they had not a full and perfect knowledge of him. But this is always the case with unbelievers, that they choose rather to remain in doubt than be founded on the certainty of the word of God. Thus in our own day we see many who voluntarily shut their eyes and spread the clouds of their doubt in order to darken the clear light of the gospel. We see also many light spirits who fly about in idle speculations and never find throughout their whole life a permanent abode. When they demand that Christ shall declare himself freely or openly and boldly, their meaning is that he may no longer convey his meaning indirectly and in a uh, circuitous manner. Thus they charge his doctrine with obscurity. But on the contrary, it was abundantly plain and distinct if the men who heard it had not been deaf. Our Lord Jesus does not conceal that he is the Christ, and yet he does not teach them as if they are willing to learn, but rather reproaches them with obstinate malice, because though they had been taught by the word and by the works of God, they had not yet made any progress. In the quote. So, beloved, what will you do with this testimony today? Will you be like the fathers of old and those of Jesus' time? Will you harden your heart? Will you voluntarily shut your eyes and spread clouds of doubt? Because in your pride, you would simply rather choose doubt and uncertainty than to humble yourself and bow to his word. Beloved, the testimony, the history, it's all clear. It's all plain. That is not the problem problem lies within us. As Jesus would say in chapter 3, which you already looked at, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out by God. Again, his teaching is clear. It is plain. The history is there. We've even seen it in our Old Testament reading earlier today. God laying out this history hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. It's all there. There are no excuses. There is no problem with Jesus or the Bible. Beloved, the problem lies within you because you love the darkness. You refuse to come to what is so plain and obvious because the light will expose you. But understand something, my friend. You will come into the exposure of the light one way or the other, sooner or later. And so will you stand before the great shepherd in humility, seeking his mercy and his grace? Or will you stand before him in your pride and arrogance, rejecting what has so clearly been made plain? and then suffer eternal wrath. Beloved, today, if you hear his voice, the voice of the great shepherd, do not harden your heart. Flee to Christ. Let's pray.